0: Here's an experiment for you. Take passionate experts in human resource technology. Invite cross-industry experts from inside and outside HR. Mix in what's happening in people analytics today. Give them the technology to connect, hit record, pour their discussions into a beaker, mix thoroughly, and voila, you get the HR Data Labs podcast, where we explore the impact of data and analytics to your business. We may get passionate, and even irreverent, that count on each episode challenging and enhancing your understanding of the way people data can be used to solve real-world problems. Now, here's your host, David Turetsky.
1: Hello and welcome to the HR Data Labs podcast. I'm your host, David Turetsky. Like always, we try and find fascinating people inside and outside the world of human resources to give you the latest on what's happening in HR data analytics, and HR technology. Today we have with us Kevin Campbell, who's an employee experience scientist. That is an awesome title, Kevin. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I the, it's a new job title that oftentimes is called people scientist at different companies. So Humu, Laszlo Box, the, the former CHRO of Google, employs people scientists at Humu, Culture Amp, my former employer has people scientists. Essentially, a people scientist or an employee experience scientist is someone who sits at the intersection of organizational psychology, consulting, and practice, actual real-world practice. A little bit different than people analytics, whereas people analytics, Mm -hmm. you might have a data science background or a computer science background, and you just work with people data as opposed to other types of data. People scientists, EX scientists tend to have that organizational psychology domain knowledge okay. in addition to knowing just enough to be dangerous on the analytics and consulting piece.
1: And so you work at Qualtrics. hmm yeah. And what kind of things are you really diving into at Qualtrics? Or is that kind of one of the things we're going to get into today Within our topic.
2: Yeah, it's one of the things that we're gonna get into today, but I, I I love to talk about it. I love my work. The the things that are exciting me these days are are connecting different points of the employee journey together, to have employee journey analytics. So being able to predict what's going to happen to an employee down the road, how engaged they're going to be based upon their initial onboarding experience, what initial experiences will inform their level of performance or performance reviews. Sure. But the the thing that's really, really interesting is how you can make predictions and be able to drive impact for customer outcomes, customer experience by virtue of what's happening in the employee experience.
1: My hope is that that's actually happening in people analytics as well, or with people who kind of are in the people analytics realm, probably not to the extent that you are. So I'm going to really be excited about the topic for today because our topic is really, really close to that. But before we get there, Kevin, I have to ask you, what is one thing that no one on this earth knows about Kevin Campbell? The one thing that
2: nobody on this earth knows about Kevin Campbell.
1: By the way, we can't abstract the internet. The internet is on this earth, even if it is in the ether and in the cloud. It is still on the earth, so just wanted so, to qualify so that. So
2: I'm, I'm, I'm going to break the rules of the question because there are several people on the earth that know about this. If anybody was climbing uh, Machu Picchu, on this particular day. They, they, they know this, but I proposed to my wife on the, the top of Machu Picchu, one of the the seven wonders of the world. And I almost got kicked out of Machu Picchu because of it. Because if, if you've ever been, there's a big sign uh, above (laughs) entering the city that says no clapping, no making a commotion. And the minute I kneeled, to present her with the silicone Kalo ring because I, there was no way I was wow. going to bring an actual diamond right. ring right. onto the Inca Trail and into the Andes. Sure. Uh, so I, I had Pretty that smart. stuffed into my my hiking hat for three days. But when I kneeled and, and proposed to her, everybody on the mountain, everybody stopped what they were doing and turned to us and started clapping. And I the, the people that were making sure that no commotion was happening were not... Very pleased with
1: that. The no commotion police were there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. I love it. Did you hear recently? They said that Machu Picchu is actually not its real name.
2: That is very unsurprising, but interesting. Yes,
1: because I think I think it's there was something where it says the original language was something like soft mountain. Instead of old mountain or hard mountain, something mm. like that. But yeah, it's just it's new news on Machu Picchu. So there you go. But that is that is really cool. That is one of the most unique things someone said. So that's uh, applause. Oh, I can't. I gotta be quiet about it.
2: <laughs> I see what you did there, David. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So, today's topic, Kevin, is again near and dear to your heart, of course, but it also strikes a chord with me, which is how do we measure employee experience to drive customer outcomes? And for those people who've listened to the HR Data Labs podcast, we love talking about how we can transition the conversation from being employee centric to being about the business and how HR and those of us who work with hr can influence the business outcome so this is a really cool topic for us
2: yeah it's it's exciting stuff it's it's interesting because we've always known intuitively that these connections exist and you know happy employees create happy customers and there's research published peer-reviewed research that that demonstrates that there's a connection there but we don't often see it in our organizations, and we don't often pinpoint exactly what needs to be done in right. order to drive that connection and in order to take action on the connections when we find them.
1: So, Kevin, question one is What is an employee experience scientist? Because I Personally, I've never heard about that before. What is that kind of job? And I love to hear the fact that you love your job. And I'd, I'd love to use the word money instead of the first day of the week.
2: Yeah. <laughs> happy money. I'm going to replace mon-yay. happy Monday with happy money. Exactly. Uh, my job is to identify and eliminate experience gaps in the employee experience and driving other elements of experience management through organizational workforce dynamics. So thinking about the experience over and above the operational data right? and the experiential data that goes along with that, right? Like the operational data associated with onboarding is sure. was the laptop delivered? What was the start date? What's the time to ramp? Uh, time to hit quota if it's a salesperson. But then sure. there's the experience of how aggravating or easy or delighted Were you, with the experience of setting up your laptop for the first time, did you feel like you were truly enabled and empowered to be able to hit your quota as quickly as possible? Right. And bringing those things together uh, allows you to make decisions and have insights that you wouldn't be able to make with just one or the other.
1: Are you able to do things like correlations of met their team, interviewed with their team, um, basically got introduced to their team prior to start date? and experiences on the back end of satisfied, engaged, performant. Are you able to do things like that where you're able to actually draw those really simple, obvious correlations, but yet really do it with hard data?
2: It's not always as obvious as you would think, actually. And yes, so a large retailer, this is real recent too, so it's top of mind, wanted to understand... What early onboarding experiences lead to greater feelings of belonging, right. which is a hot topic, sure. six months or a year into a role, and they wanted to drive it down to specific behaviors that the manager partakes in as part of that initial introduction. So does your manager introduce themselves to you and, right. and, and bring you aboard with a text message, a phone call? An in-person meeting right. or a Zoom meeting. Right. And the the, as you could guess, the text message <laughs> had a negative impact on belonging. But the in-person meeting and the Zoom meeting were just as strong as each other, and the phone call was somewhere in between. But right. being able to see those differences and, and take that hard data back to frontline managers and say, here's what we found. Has a stronger relationship with your employees, feeling like they belong on a team, feeling right. like they can speak up, feeling like they they're going to stick around for a while. Sure. And if you want, if you have a lot of turnover, sometimes it can be really tempting to say, "I don't know if this person's even going to stick around, so I'm just going to shoot them in, uh, a, you know, a quick email or a quick text." Rather than taking the time to set up an in-person interview, but in in the end, you might actually be creating the problem that you're you're finding yourself in the middle of by virtue of doing that.
1: I, I think one of the more amazing things is is that you know people really do know the difference between good interaction and bad interaction. I'm sure they think it's intuitive in their own mind, but when they experience it firsthand, it probably comes across a little bit differently. And I'll give you an example. You you brought up the manager texting versus the manager making a call or the manager um, having an in-person meeting versus a Zoom meeting. And having that be maybe not the first interaction because they maybe did do an interview, but maybe one of those onboarding interactions of, hey, let let me get some time with you to talk to you about what's going on with the group. You'd think it would be obvious. But it may not be obvious because of differences in culture, differences Mm. in age, differences in background. And you talk about belonging, too. There are a lot of people who probably have very different ways of dealing with other people. And so, experientially, it would be really cool to actually see the differences by, to me, because I love more data, by function, by age, by certain demographics... To be able to understand what's the best way of actually being able to have those best first interactions because as they say then they've been doing this a long time the first impression is usually the the one that lasts right
2: absolutely and a couple of things come to mind as you say that you know one is from an analytical perspective or an analytics perspective. Putting those things, those demographic variables in as a control variable into the model. And we like to do that kind of stuff uh, on our end to make sure that we're keeping ourselves honest to say, like, oh, when we throw those demographics in, do do these relationships still exist? I don't always agree with with necessarily sharing that information back with line managers because it's just going to confuse them. So sometimes just like simple bivariate correlations are way more impactful than that. Right. And another piece around this is that, and I'm guilty of this as well, is that, you know, a lot of times when we're trying to close experience gaps, we try and do that by improving the experience itself, which is absolutely warranted. But a lot of times the gap comes from the gap between expectations and experiences. Right. So... Another way of mitigating that is not necessarily to instruct all of your managers to, hey, have a sit-down meeting instead of doing a text message because there might be instances where that's the only thing they can get across, the only thing they can do because of other constraints. Sure. But if you at least have that initial conversation of setting the expectations that, hey, we're moving fast and quick in this organization and, you know, there are going to be times where I'm not going to be able to have the same kind of deeper interaction that I would like to be able to have with you And I want you to know that it's not because of you. It's because of the constraints that I'm facing. Right. That can go a long way in terms of closing that gap as well. Absolutely.
0: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking subscribe. This podcast is made possible by salary.com. Now, back to the show.
1: So, Kevin, the next question I want to ask you is about connecting the employee experience data with actual customer outcomes. Because we know there should be a connection. But how do you actually start making those connections? And what at what part of the employee experience do you really like to dive into that?
2: I think the most important thing to start making those connections is to collect data from both experiences, to have a transactional experience data collection process for your customers. Or, or it could be relational, but the transactional piece tends to be even, even stronger. Uh, so they... Pick up a, an order from your restaurant. They sure. um, check in at the hotel. They check out of the hotel. And making sure that you're thinking about that shared journey. There's a lot of work being done around thinking through the customer journey and thinking through the employee journey. But what's that combined journey? And what are those t- touch points where you want to have the experiential data from from both pieces? So that's the first thing. The next is to make sure that you're collecting the data at enough frequency to where you can be able to make those connections. And being intentional about where do you set up those listening posts and what's the the leading indicator and what's the lagging indicator. Because if you believe that that customer experience drives employee experience, then you would want to make sure the data that you're collecting and analyzing is the customer experience data first, and then the employee. But more often than not, we're trying to link the other way around. And If we're trying to make a causal inference, you obviously right. want to have the the employee engagement or employee experience data come before the, the customer experience data or, or have some sort of overlap between the two. And then it's really helpful to have some sort of a priori hypothesis going into the analysis. But even if you don't, and this is where some people in, in my line of work might disagree, sometimes even if you don't have an a priori hypothesis, sometimes just doing a bivariate correlation with everything that you ask on the employee experience side, with some of your major customer outcomes like net promoter score or likelihood to recommend, you're going to find something. And it may not necessarily make sense, and it might not be a a true causal relationship, but it's going to be something interesting that you're going to want to do a double-click into. And that's where the magic happens, is sometimes not always having that top-down, I want to test this theory, but maybe having a grounded theory that you're creating based upon the observations that you're making. One really interesting example is... A quick service restaurant found that teams, restaurant teams that have better teamwork and collaboration had a strong relationship with customers saying that the food tasted better. (laughs) Now,
1: obviously, there's nothing. It's possible. (laughs) It is possible.
2: (laughs) Right, right, right. Because
1: if your heart's in it, you'll probably follow the SOPs more, which should lead to better outcomes because those SOPs have been honed to get the best outcome in terms of texture, taste, and potentially re- revenue. So you'd hope that that's actually true, right?
2: Absolutely. And that was the thing. When, when we presented this finding back to the, the stakeholders, we were like, ah, you know, this is probably, there's a good chance this is a spurious correlation. I, I, we didn't really have an a priori hypothesis going into this. And they like, no, 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 no. This makes perfect sense because the way that they do it at this restaurant is that the the people are set up sort of like an assembly line. Yeah. And, you know, if someone's making your burrito and they they line the beans up just a certain way and then they line the machaca or, or whatever it is and, and the guacamole, like having that layering so that every bite yeah. gives you a little bit of each can make a right. big difference.
1: Absolutely. Totally agree. So th- let me get dive double click into this, though, because this is really important. Correlative versus causal, we get dinged a lot in people analytics when we try and make too heavy a statement. How do you, because I think with the n you're dealing with, you might be able to get there, but how do you get there where you can distinctly call it causal versus correlative? Where do you make that distinction and, and, and how can you basically prove it?
2: I don't think you need to prove it. And I don't think that we need causal data in order to to use this information in order to make good decisions. And I also think it depends on the use case and the audience. So if your use case is trying to predict attrition and you're trying to do workforce planning, then you might need a very sophisticated model that accounts for things that are outside of your control, like labor market fluctuations and... If you're trying to convince your frontline manager that this employee experience stuff is actually going to impact the bottom line, you don't necessarily have to have that same kind of sophistication in your analysis. Right. So, And you don't have to have causal data, especially if the things that we're calling drivers, right, like like teamwork and collaboration, if they are something that you already want to see within your workforce – aside from, from what they, they, they correlate with, then there's nothing, there's, there's no risk in making a type one error. Right.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah, that's true. There's no, there
2: is a, there's the risk of making the error, but there's no, there's no. Right. Right. Yeah. Having people be more collaborative is a good (laughs) undo itself. such a
1: terrible thing, Kevin. Gosh, what are you saying? (laughs) Right. Well, but but to, but to be honest, though, we make this mistake a lot, and and especially in people analytics, where we say that because we did this, we paid people more, that mm. they stuck around. Which you can't possibly say that. There's there are so many other factors involved. And to your point, you know, it would be you know, it's not such a terrible thing if you do that. But the problem is, you cannot make that correlation.
2: No, you can't. You're absolutely right. Yeah, but you can say there's there's something there, right? You can, yeah, you can. right. You know, even even if if you if you use the classic example of you know, sunscreen has a, a high correlation with you know, I don't know, reduce ice cream cancer sale, death, for, ice, for ice cancer? cream
1: sales, right? Oh,
2: okay, <laughs> right. When 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 sales for sunscreen go up, right, sales for ice cream go up,
1: absolutely, right,
2: and. We all know. It's the reason no why ca- I put
1: it on, because I want to get ice cream.
2: <laughs> there's no, there's, right. Like there's no causal relationship there. Right. We know right, that. Right. right. But right. It's, it's enough for us to go, huh? Sure. What might be happening there? Oh, hotter exactly. days, sunnier hotter days. Hotter day,
1: days, sun out. Yeah, exactly. Right.
2: So, so it's more of a diagnostic to make us do that double click.
1: Absolutely. But,
2: but. but it's, uh, still, it, it's still, it's still a
1: delicious correlation. Definitely.
2: (laughs) But, but, you know, as a, as a, as a, uh, as an ice cream parlor owner, if you see the sunscreen uh, shop owner, not that there is such a thing, but bear with me. If you see that that person's increasing sales because maybe they have better analytics and they know that it's going to be a a, a hotter day, you can kind of tag onto what they're doing. Right. It's like,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. But I I want to go back to one thing before we transition to the next question. You had made the statement of not really having a hypothesis. Mm. We know as a scientist, you're at least trying to trawl for something. And even if you're trawling for some interesting insight that will come out of the analysis, you have to have some kind of bias going in, right? There's something that you're looking for. There's some kind of pattern you're trying to find. And one of the things that I'm trying to relate to the, to the, listeners is that you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to call yourself a scientist to at least have the investigative mind to say, when I'm looking at this data, I want to drive a story out of it. Mm. And that story could either be proven or disproven based on what I find, the facts I find. And that's exactly what you're saying, right? It's not that you're, you're not, you have nothing going in, you have a predetermined notion and that's a story potentially, right?
2: Yeah. The, the implied hypothesis is what relationship, if any, right is there between this employee experience data that I have and this customer experience data that I have? And that's so. In a sense, yeah, that that's definitely the 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 catch-all hypothesis. And and, and when you frame it that way, you're almost always going to going to confirm that one, right? Because there's always some relationship, whether that relationship is you know, the, the directionality of that relationship and whether there's a, you know, a mediating third variable or a bunch of mediating variables is a ton of noise
1: that you're getting because you're just regressing way too much stuff.
2: Well, that's, that's a good point too, right? It's like, sometimes you can overfit your model, right? Right. By throwing too many things into it. And then you can't even make sense of it anymore. Sometimes the simple bivariate correlation makes way more sense. So, you know, classic examples, I was working with a, a large tech company, and they had a, a, a beautiful people analytics department that were made up of folks with an, an econometrics background from elite universities. And they had an OD person who was very well educated in, in, in organizational development but didn't know the first thing about stats. Sure. And I was showing them a simple bivariate correlation between their current employee engagement drivers and their employee engagement index. And it was these five items. Uh, The people analytics team took the previous three years worth of engagement surveys and they put it into a, a weighted multiple regression with different coefficients for, for different weights, and they controlled for things like tenure and gender and, and a couple other variables. And four out of the five drivers for both lists were the same. The top three were identical. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it was their model more accurate Absolutely. Yeah. W- w- did the organizational development the person understand why they were a oh, little no. bit different, or what the difference in, in the analysis was? No, they and they couldn't explain no. it. Mine they could explain. When this number goes up, this number goes up. Right. When this number goes down, this number goes down.
1: And and I think there's beauty in that simplicity more than anybody can imagine who's not a stats person. Because what we've failed to do as econometricians. A lot of times in the people analytics realm, I will, I'll just say that, is that sometimes the simplest answer is the best answer. And the story you tell from it is more meaningful because when you start throwing the kitchen sink in and you cause too much co- correlative problems, you co- cause too much noise and too much error, you try and make the most elegant thing in the world... It may seem like a BMW, but it actually runs like a jalopy because the, the results of it fall apart. But you can't even explain it to people, which makes them upset.
2: The jalopy analogy is, is great, though, right? No, because I was, on, I, was on, I was in a meeting and you know there was, there was a, a difference of opinion about whether to use a more sophisticated analysis or use the kind of simpler one. And someone said, well, I don't want to sell manual transmission cars in the days of automatics. And I said, you know what? Actually, I, I think it's the opposite. I think, I think the simpler analysis is the automatic. Mm-hmm. And the more sophisticated analysis is the manual transmission on a sports car. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the sure. PC that has so much more power that can do all the different things versus the Mac that just works, right? It's the, it's the, it's the iPhone, you just pull it out and you know right. how to use it versus the right. Android that can do way more cool things. Right. But it's, it, so it's, you know, are we building things and are we approaching things for analytics departments or are we, are we making solutions for HR leaders and frontline leaders? And I think both. I mean, right. I know this is a people, you know, HR data labs, people analytics podcast. I, I want to build tools for, for people analytics people. And I want to yeah. help them because they're way smarter than I am in most instances. But I also want to be the translator between those folks. Right. And the, the frontline leaders and the, the, the HR business people to make it actionable and easy.
1: And, and I think that skill is really key, Kevin is being able to be able to explain the really sophisticated stuff to the people who can use it and need it. And then to be able to explain the sophisticated yet automatic to the people who need the automatic, but want to be able to build it into how they work. And they may not have looked at stuff like this before, but now that you've explained it to them, they can now build it into their thinking. And I think that kind of gets us into the next question, which is, what have you learned that can help you make that connection between the HR data, the people analytics, technologies and techniques, and being able to get the right outcomes for customers?
2: The very first thing is looking at your data. And I know that sounds almost too simple, But what I mean by looking at your data is to just describe the shape of the distribution, to just look at what the data are telling you before you even analyze the data, before you even compare one data point or a set of data points to another, to just say as an example... If you're running a customer service survey and you're asking people to rate the employee that they interacted with on a seven-point scale and more than half of those ratings are a seven, you know there's invariance in that data. Sure. Right? Same thing for an employee engagement item. If you know that more than half of your people are giving a five out of five to, I know what's expected of me at work. You know that there's a significant difference between somebody who gives a five on that item and somebody who gives a four, right? Somebody who gives a strongly agree versus gives an agree. Right. But then when you report the data, you're collapsing the strongly agree and agree into a favorability score. Yeah. When maybe the only connection between that question And the customer outcome doesn't happen until the employee gives a five out of five, (laughs) right? And and you're losing that extra variance and that's, that's all valuable information, right? That's the difference between a yeah and a heck yeah. And, and, and sometimes you only see the connection to business and customer outcomes when people say heck yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that one of the reasons why there's a, there's a customer service survey that we both know, which I won't name, but um, the promoter only counts. Score. What?
2: Net promoter score. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. He went there. All right.
2: <laughs> Let's do it. Let's get into it. All
1: right. It. All right. Let's call it what it is. So, so is that the reason why a net promoter score, we only count the, the, the tens, right? I mean that
2: I I have a love hate relationship with Net Promoter Score. I I like to think of it more in terms of what it actually is, which is likelihood to recommend. Yeah, because who's to say that you, that your seven is the same as my seven, right? Like, or that your six, right? In in. For those of your listeners, I, I might assume that most of your listeners know this, but net promoter score they they ask folks and i might I'm totally mansplaining right now, but ask folks how likely would you be to recommend our right. product service business to your your friends and family on a zero to ten scale with ten being very likely and zero being not likely at all, and they take all the nines and tens and call them promoters, Right. the, the sevens and eights are passives and zeros suit through six right. as a detractor. But for a lot of people, six is a good
1: score. It is. And that's why I, one of the reasons why I asked it the way I did was because when you talk about the fives versus the fours, the gulf does exist and it's huge, but there's a problem with the fives because there are a lot of people who automatically choose five because they just want to get through it.
2: That's true. And, 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 you know, there's, there's different ways of being able to account for that, but that's why I'm a big fan of, and we're totally getting into the weeds, but this is, this is the point of geeking out in this way is that I'm I'm a huge fan of labeling every scale point and on net promoter is an example. You're only labeling the extremes, right? So, you 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 can say that maybe some people are just going through and clicking through and saying all strongly agree, but there's no doubt about whether they clicked on strongly agree, <laughs> right? And, and, and when they click on agree, so you know I I I think you know some people will only label strongly disagree and strongly agree, but I think there's a lot of value in knowing that that three was labeled as a neutral, that that two was labeled as a disagree because. There's, there's, we're all on the same page of of what was clicked on when they clicked on that too. If right. you don't, if you don't label that scale point, they might think of anything north of strongly disagree as as being somewhat favorable. So it's important to label every one of those scale points so that when we're reporting this data back, we can we can be in agreement around what's being talked about.
1: But even your example of the four versus a five, and even if four is strongly agree and five is outstanding, let's just say for argument's sake, the difference between the four and the five is dramatic, right? Because your interaction with the person or the employee's interactions and how they feel when they click a four versus a five is very meaningful, especially when it comes to things like things that are very important to them. One of which is, you know, does your leader support your the vision of the company or does does your leader communicate the goals of the company right from an employee attitude or opinion survey you know when you when you look at those fours versus fives there's a dramatic difference and i think you know you know to this right there's a dramatic difference between that four and five but yet to your point a lot of us kind of will bulk them together because that's where you get the end from that kind of speaks to the prop the the how many or how often were those ratings happening versus the three, which is just I'm on the fence, which is really bad when it comes to those kind of outcomes or that question.
2: Yeah, and I think I, so. that's one of the things that I, I take issue with 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 NPS is that those neutrals are oftentimes and, and, and the fours that could go to fives. Uh, those are the folks where you have the best opportunity. Because they're not so disenchanted that they're into a, a an unfavorable place. Right. They're not so um cynical right. in many instances, but it's it's a lot easier to take a four to a five or a three to a four right. or five that's than right. it is to get a one to or a two to a three. Right. Right. So so I like seeing a lot of passives. I like seeing a lot of neutrals because that's a huge opportunity to move someone. Sure. In into being now a supporter, whereas before they were on the fence.
1: If coached the right way. Because if coached the wrong way, then that leadership gets back the thing that says, you had a lot of ones and twos, and then they feel mad, they get depressed, and then they're wondering who they have to fire on that list. And I'm being kind of serious because as a leader and having been given those those employee attitude surveys back, And then they give us coaching as to how to deal with them. It's less about trying to change their mind than what you can do and what are the actions you can take to make it happen. But the culture and the feeling of the angst, I guess of the leader now that I've been documented as being a one or two, Mm -hmm. even though it was a very small proportion, you know, how do you deal with that? What do you do? And you know, does my ps- psychiatrist, can they know those things?
2: <laughs> well, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that you think about this data, right? Are, are you thinking about it like grades on a test or are you thinking about it like the speedometer on your car, right? right. Is, it, is it an evaluation of your performance or is it information that you're using to adjust your behavior in order to get the outcome that you're looking for? You know, so I, I've heard people use the Fitbit analogy, Right. So, you know, you're you're just making you aware of how many steps that you've taken. Right. There's no need to incentivize people to hit their Fitbit steps just by virtue of tracking it. The behavior is going to come. So I think both of those things are important, not over incentivizing people to hit their scores and the way that you talk about the scores. Sometimes even using the word score right. gives right. you the right. wrong the, the wrong impression,
1: right? Absolutely. Sure. So I think we're gonna change the title of the of the of the episode to how you get ones and twos to become fours and fives. No, <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. So, Kevin, we could probably talk about these topics all day. And I really appreciate you being here. One of the things that, that I want to do is try and summarize for our listeners what we talked about. So, first of all, you introduced the concept of an employee experience scientist and how that's different from people analytics. And I think that's really cool and very important. And then we talked a little bit about the experience, how you get EX to be able to show us the correlations and the causal effects of employee experience on customer outcomes, really cool stuff as well. And then we got into a discussion around MPS, which we probably will rue that, but that's okay. Now we talked a little bit about what people can learn from those measurements and from what you do. And I'm going to have to ask you back, but the, the one thing I always ask people is, is there anything else you wanted to tell our listeners before we end today?
2: I I think that the the big thing to keep in mind is that, you know, humans are full of heuristics and shortcuts and biases, and I don't think that is a bug. I think that's a feature, and the more that we can lean into that as people in HR, as people that work with data, to understand that that's what makes us human— and that's where the, the the magic and experiential data lies, because the quality of that cup of coffee is so much more when you see that Starbucks label on it, not because of the quality of the actual coffee, but because of the quality of the experience that you have. Sure. So I don't know if that has anything to do with the rest of what we talked about, but
1: it doesn't doesn't care. It doesn't matter. It's all it's all good. That's that's a wonderful. It's a really really cool way of ending. And that's uh, uh, I learned a lot today, and oh, awesome. uh, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate you. So thank you, Kevin, and thank you guys for listening. And if you like the episode, please send it on to people who you think might enjoy it. And please hit subscribe. Thank you very much. Take care, and please stay safe.
0: That was the HR Data Labs podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe. And if you know anyone that might like to hear it, please send it their way. Thank you for joining us this week and stay tuned for our next episode. Stay safe.